Hello, this is Melissa, and it is Real History on Thursday, May the 4th, 2023. And I'm really excited today to have guests JP and Julie Collins with me. And they have a website and they have a YouTube channel called Book of Hours. I learned about them just a few weeks ago from Darren in South Africa. And you recall I did two back-to-back real histories with him. And the first one that we did, he told me about a video that he thought would go really well with what we had talked about called The New Model Communitarianism. And I looked at the video, I watched the video, and I have to say I was just blown away, I guess, would be the way that I would describe it. The artistry, the creativity, the thoughts behind it, what went into their thinking was just so amazing to me. And so I contacted them and I invited them to do a real history with me and they accepted. It's interesting they have, um, they had never heard about Alan Watt or Cutting Through the Matrix. And so I said who I was and what I was doing. So now I want to tell you just a little bit about Book of Hours. They have a video on their site that explains in a really neat way. There's no talking. It's just some music. And then the visuals and the words go over it. And it says that Book of Hours comes from the Book of Hours with an H, the Christian devotional book. And the purpose of these, you, you might have seen them there. The monks did these incredible hand paintings. They had the, the frame and then the verses from the Bible. And they were just incredible things that, you know, who knows who could afford one of these things because I think the monks spent about a year or two painting each book, maybe longer. But they said that they liked that idea because The Book of Hours had a devotional purpose and its artistry, and both of those things resonated with what they wanted to do. They said, for us, the devotion to creativity is our primary action. We dropped the H because the world belongs to all of us. The name Book of Hours is a rejection of the capitalist vision of the world and its distortion of what life is about. Book of Hours is anarchism. So I dug a little bit deeper. I watched a few more of the things that they put out. And and at one point where they're talking about who they are, and they said that they were leftists, that they were doing video essays coming from a leftist point of view. And I stopped. I had a little talk with myself just for a moment. And I said, let's not get caught up in the left-right paradigm. Let's not talk about labels because what I see with their work is just incredible creative thinking and thinking, creative thinking about the problems that we are presented with in this world. And these problems are way beyond politics and therefore they're way beyond labels. And I just... Before I blather on into the world of crazy fangirl here, I wanted to say that a couple of things that they've talked about deal right in line with the things that Alan Watt dealt with. 
public-private partnerships, the way that uh, NGOs take over every aspect of our daily lives. And so without further ado, here are JP and Julie Collins. Huh? Hello. <laughs> Hi, Melissa. Hi. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much. I'm blushing over here. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I wanted to address something that you said. You know, yeah, we, we, we used to uh, we, we used to use the, the leftist label more often. And I think since since we started Book of Hours and in the last couple of years, you know, we've met other anarchists that we we resonate with who did not fall for the, you know, the COVID narrative that we, that we found that we were moving into an area called post left anarchism. Um, and I don't even think that that is, is a good enough label to describe where we are, but, um, we, we, uh, we were and even green anarchism wouldn't be a good enough label, but we're sort of in that, that realm of earth spirituality and, you know the, the the problem with leftism or the the uh, the label of it is is that a lot of people think of communism and and we're certainly not for that especially state sponsored communism but we we believe that you know there is a level of community and um and collectivism that's required that I think has been bred out of people over the last 150 years where people in, in you know societies and cultures and and People in small towns or even in cities um, were there for each other more than they are today. We've all been been uh, led to a place to where we don't have each other's backs like we used to, and we need to relearn that. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we. I want to thank you for uh, taking a chance on us, <laughs> <laughs> despite the fact that our little intro video on our YouTube channel describes us as sort of leftists or anarchists. We don't think of anarchism as a as a label, but more like a philosophy, more mm-hmm. like a way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's more spiritual than a practice, mm-hmm. maybe. As a practice, yeah. yeah. More spiritual and also, um, you know, it's a way of looking at the world, a way of approaching things. And it's more humanist than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Certainly we're anti-state, anti-capitalist. There are anarchists that are, you know, that consider themselves capitalists and others that consider themselves sort of in between, like, you know, people who would follow the writings of, say, Proudhon, who, you know, I would, I would even say that I, you know, I, I liked, I like what Proudhon um, offered. He was considered the first, you know, person to, to label himself as anarchist, a French um, writer from the, the 19th century. But uh, anyway, um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, that's sort of like where we are, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I think of, of it as, as, as being sort of, you know, we, we, we exchange with each other and it's up to each individual community as to how they, they see their economy working. And, um, you know, if you have a series of small groups that, that live, you know, in, in, you know, in their little group or their little neighborhood or whatever and, um, exchanging with each other and, and sort of federating that way. Um, you can see a broader context of how maybe an anarchist society might work. It's and, a good sampling. Of yeah. It. And, yeah. you know, and you can point to like traditional or, or indigenous communities or societies is a better word throughout the world. Um, that might be in remote places like South America or uh, South South Pacific Seas, whatever, where there is no real hierarchy. They live in small 
groups. You know, some would call them tribes. Uh, maybe even some of the Native American societies would, would fit into this, where, you know, if there were leaders, they weren't necessarily leaders for life. And there, there was more, uh, there was a lack of hierarchy. There was more exchange, direct democracy. And people would, there's, it just seems like there's a, there's a lot less, what am I trying to say? There's a conflict maybe, you know? Right. Yeah. And there's a lot like less conflict. There's better communication, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. people are, are drawing out each other's, uh, talent as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to overtake another person and mm-hmm. be the best. You know, everybody looks at each other's talents equally and mm-hmm. gives them the proper time to mm-hmm. help the community. Um, not to be confused with communitarianism, which right. I noticed you mentioned in the intro. In well, your intro. listeners, longtime listeners to Alan Watt will certainly be familiar with what communitarianism is. And when I was talking to you about who Alan was and what he thought and what he talked about, you said, oh, he was an anarchist. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned something about the way he, 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 uh, he conducted him, his business or his business, his personal yes. business yes. And, and his songwriting. And, 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 and I said, oh, that's very yeah. anarchist. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it truly, he was a person. I mean, there, I just cracked open one of his books there and he says, this author does not belong to any group religion or secret fraternity. Mm-hmm. I will not give new information as a hook whilst bending your mind into a prepared slot, enabling your handlers to form the shape of things to come. And I think that one of the reasons that you your work and the way that you think resonated so much with me is that Alan would talk quite a lot all the time about the male-female union as being the initial, that's that's the first part of the tribe. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. you've got the family, you've got all of this. I mean, if he was in favor of anything, it was a let's strengthen tribe. Tribe is not necessarily any longer, you know, your, the family that you're born into, but who right. is your tribe? And right. how can you help each other? And the other thing that, that Alan was very known for was talking about the con of money. Mm-hmm. The con of money is an ancient, ancient con. This dates back thousands of years. And what he would say is whatever you put between what you have and what they have, the old barter system, That's where the con comes in, Mm -hmm. whether the con is, whether it's gold, silver, the so-called fiat paper money, seashells. If you've got a middle man in between you, what you have to, quote, buy or sell, in other words, you've got something to exchange. And when there's a middle man in there as part of the medium of exchange, you're being conned. Wow. Yeah, I, I would not disagree. <laughs> I would I would definitely agree with that. Um, and you know, we don't get into economies or, or talk about economies of any kind generally on our platform because it's not an area that we have any special uh, knowledge in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we we tend to talk about other subjects, but when people do ask me about that, it, you know, I, I defer and just say, look, I don't I don't know, and and personally, I think it's up to, like I said before, to the um, the group or society or or tribe of people and how they conduct you know business with one another, and whether that's you know strictly bartering. Or if it's you know something a friend of ours suggested like uh, um, what was that the uh, the the he had like credits that right yeah you know. so a local friend here in Pittsburgh wanted to start sort of a, a an authentic mutual aid sort of credit system and it's something that he actually learned in Occupy Wall Street when he was um, actually he was in Occupy San Francisco mm-hmm. and he he happens to be from Pittsburgh so but um, so he he was you know explaining that to us and how it worked pretty well in in the Occupy movement and I think that's one of the reasons that Obama unleashed you know private hmm. mercenaries to crack the skulls of the Occupy movement because mm-hmm. they because it was working uh, mm-hmm. This sort of barter system and this sort of lack of hierarchy and working together and drawing out the talents of, of each per individual to make the community work was a real threat to the establishment, a real threat to the state. I think now what we're dealing with, though, is this new version of an economy. If you're talking about the economy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, the word con is an economy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, individuals are now the, 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 the product. So it used yes. to be that... Yeah. We had power as consumers mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we could sort of, we could vote with our purse or vote with our, the, where we spent our money. And now what's happened is now that fiat currency is sort of turned upside down and capitalism is kind of run its course, human beings are now the economy by which the state and various other unelected apparatus like NGOs and those three letter agencies up in, in the UN are, are, bartering with each other using us as the currency and mining the human body and the human mind into their own pockets, you know? So Mm -hmm. I talk about that a lot in some of the audio broadcasts I do where I'm very concerned about how, especially the poorer communities, specifically poorer black communities are becoming you know, victim to this, this con, victim to these wraparound services that hunt them for profit. So mm-hmm. that's a big, you know, I'm very concerned about that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, I think this might be a good time to launch just a little bit because it was listening to your work that I learned about something called zones of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And right. Alan's listeners are going to get this very, very easily, even if they've never heard of this, because this is NGOs at their absolute worst. And what you said, what you talked about, the hunted, the the data harvesting of individuals is the place in which they come in and take over and down, down to the smallest, youngest individual in a community where the community says, oh, good, this is our savior. They're here to help us. And they're <laughs> not. They're not at all there to help you. No. No. Exactly. And, you know, uh, we live in an opportunity zone. And you'll find them throughout the country in, in, um, in poor communities. And, well, you want to talk about what they are? 
Sure. Yes. Ultimately, ultimately, um, and I have have quite a different perspective of opportunity zones because I'm from San Francisco and, and, um, I know that the Silicon Valley set, the sort of the tech bro set, um, (laughs) like Sean Parker, who was one of the early in, he was the early investors in Facebook. Um, he was going on and on and on about opportunity zones as sort of tax havens you know, for these very wealthy Silicon Valley types, you know, tax havens, Mm -hmm. when you think of them, you think of them as something overseas, you know, like on an island somewhere Mm -hmm. in a private bank where all the rich people hide their money. Well, there's, you know, rich people money being hidden right here in opportunity zones, right outside of, you know, your, your bigger city, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, San Francisco, there's opportunity zones all over the country. And so usually in an opportunity zone, what you have are a lot of nonprofits, a lot of non-governmental organizations. There's usually a spark of a social movement organization like Black Lives Matter or trans rights that tend to pop up in opportunity zones to sort of rile people up and get them to be excited or committed to a cause of some sort. And mm-hmm. of course those causes are funded by social movement organizations, which are backed by found foundations. Mm-hmm. So foundation money. So what you have is people, there's a lot of section eight housing too in opportunity zones, which section eight is the equivalent of like council housing in, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom. So it's affordable housing, which we're not against. We think, you know, if people are struggling financially or born into poverty, then we think that these, some of these government subsidized programs like Section 8 housing and uh, food support or, you know, food stamps, those are good things. We're, we're fine with that. Well, if we have to live in the system that we live in, that, yeah. you know, there should be something like that to help or people. Or the people. Yeah. The problem that we have is that these, these, these are- areas have now been used as a way for, for financial incentives and to tools find, of oppression and, and tools of oppression. So yeah. if you're, if you're born into poverty and you're born into the section eight housing, then you're automatically labeled as a troubled child. You're automatically labeled as someone who is considered quote at risk. Mm-hmm. So income, the caseworkers income, the foundation representatives and the liaisons to convince the mother that she needs to put her children onto certain programs and those, and then forever they are stamped and marked and labeled and chained as problem children. They'll never get an opportunity the way, you know, other people get opportunities. They'll be told that they'll get opportunities if they involve themselves in these programs. But basically it's like slavery. Mm-hmm. It's chaining these people to these um, systems and to these labels that it's where where their their recorded information on their on their data plan or you know on their mm-hmm. that runs through the state system automatically labels them as troubled so to not not to let them get too far in life not to let them get to college or you know fulfill any potential that they have redirect them into behavioral modification programs and constantly tell them over and over again that they are that they'll benefit from this, that they were born bad or that they were, you know, that they have, that they're at risk for, you know, getting into gangs and maybe they're not, you know? So 
I feel like a lot of this is sort of this weird self-fulfilling mm, pro- prophecy. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Well, I, you know, they're making tons of money at it. Yeah. And I so. think, you know, the other thing to do, you brought you brought up the, the tech bros and the billionaires in the Bay Area, you know, and and basically it's a, it's a tax haven for them as you said, and it allows them to make investments into a into a community like the one we live in. For instance, we both are from San Francisco. We moved to a, a neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, there's a number of, of opportunity zones in this city. But we're, we live in one of them. But so it's a sort of a tax haven that allow them to invest in these types of programs or in social impact bonds and uh, nonprofits and, and foundations that support these things. And what these organizations uh, do and are about are creating these programs to keep the programs going. There's no incentive in place to get people to a place where they can be self-sufficient as long as they are dependent on the programs themselves. And I'm not talking about welfare checks. I'm talking about wraparound services right. and, and things that, that say, hey, you know, you can get a job if you, you know, apply for this program and go through these steps and do these things. And as long as you keep coming back and checking in with us and getting this training, and the training gets them only so far. The, the services only get them part way to where they're constantly at the, at the behest or that the, you know, they're on the hook basically with these different programs. And it, and it makes it so that people have been put into these, you know, tracks in their lives and they can never get out of them. And I personally think, and I think JP agrees with me, that what if you want to take a look at what the goal is for the rest of the world, for the middle class, for the you know for the managerial class, then you should probably look closely at what's going on with opportunity zones mm-hmm. because it's a very organized process to change behavior and change what it means to earn money, mm-hmm. to be a contributing member of society it really is reshaping the you know what people think about themselves and it's it's uh, pretty insidious because what it's doing is it's really just when it comes down to it it's really just normalizing the fact that you're a slave mm-hmm. it's a slave slave right. mentality right. And so we, and we talk about this a little bit in in the communitarianism video that you were talking about but we yes. also talk about it a little bit in in uh, our other video uh, another video called lifelong learning where we say, if if you want to know what's happening to what will happen to you in your life, just look at what's going on with what's been going on with the with the poor um, for the last fifty years. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a a, f- a few things um, that you, you've made me think of. One, Alan would talk a lot about uh, scientific socialism, and I think that these zones of opportunity and the wraparound programs are. That's just scientific socialism. It's where an expert class comes in mm-hmm. and runs everything about your life. You, you talk about these being tax havens for the billionaires. What you've described in some of your audios and videos is that lots and lots of money goes into these places. It's almost like a kind of... Um, washing, laundering the money. It just <laughs> floats in and it floats yeah. out. And yep, you, you said there's exactly right. so much money going in there, they could actually solve all of the problems of that neighborhood in which that, that they've called an opportunity zone. But that is not the intention of it. The intention is to build this lifelong um, 
sorry, but I'm just thinking of the teat of a cow, you know, that the, mm-hmm. the people in the community have to live off of. They can never get away. And one of the things that you mentioned in, in uh, the audio that you did, The Hunted, was really struck me. You said that there's behavior modification going on here. These mm-hmm. children are being taught, this may not be the word that you used, but they're being taught right think, how to exactly. think. And you, how to get their head you, right, right? Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. You said it so beautifully, but you said that, that, that that's the worst thing that you can do is take away yeah. the ability to think. Exactly. So that's so. I was talking very specifically um, about a program that was recently introduced introduced yeah. into the community we live in, and the you know the woman who heads the nonprofit here received a ten million ten point eight million dollar grant, and one of the first things they brag about is taking the kids and getting their mind right in the morning before <laughs> like before they go to school they have to go to do a behavior modification program, and I was just. It was, I was just appalled. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think that is the worst thing that, that, um, a system or a technocracy or some kind of, you know, upper, higher class of people can, can do to another class of people is to start mucking around in the brains of individuals. If you've lost your ability for choice, if you've lost your ability to actually think through on your own terms about life, even if, even if those, even if your own thoughts lead you to making the wrong choices, that's okay too, you know? So mm-hmm. to have somebody else just get in there and force you into a, a, a system of thinking is, is like a crime against humanity. And, you know, I don't know about, you know, what's going on with other countries, but I know for a fact that Obama signed language into the National Defense Authorization Act that opened up giant revenue streams for behavioral modification programs. Yes. Well, you know, Obama, he had this uh, um, information czar, and that's what they called him, (laughs) the information czar. And um, I, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but he wrote a book called Nudged, and I think oh, yeah. if I... Oh, yeah. We talk about the Nudge, in fact. Do you? In, okay, in, so... In lifelong Learning. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Nudged was... Who was that? Oh, Cass Sunstein. That's yeah. right. Thank, a, thank you. My mind worked, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, Cass Sunstein was the information czar, and this, it, all it is is pure and simple behavior modification. Yeah, exactly. With with a market with a good marketing uh, program. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alan cast Sunstein in a couple of our, our yeah. videos. Do you? Yeah. yeah, do you? Yeah. Um, Alan was from Scotland, but he had lived many years in Canada, and he he was basically the big picture thinker. So he never got into nationalism or just the problems of one area. But maybe it was because he was Scottish. He did cover in a lot of depth a program that they have in Scotland called Getting It Right for Every Child, GERFEC. And this wow. yeah. <laughs> and this is this is exactly what you're talking about, you know, and it uh, it sounds so nice. We want all of our children and young people to live in an equal society and be able to flourish and have dignity. Uh-uh, nonsense. They want to change the way you think from, you know, and get right in there. You're a toddler. Mm-hmm. 
How do you think? Oh, no, that's not the right way to think. It's cradle to grave. Yeah. Tweaking with your brain, monitoring you. Putting you into a a track. Um, Yeah. And so it's happening right now with Mm -hmm. the kids um, right now. So you can only imagine what this country or what the world will look like because, you know, every, like you just said, Scotland has the Gerfeck program. We have, you know, the nudge program here and Uh, we have... uh, um, What's the the, the um, uh, what's it called the 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 train the school uh, it's science uh, oh we have it's called it's science I'm blanking too uh, yeah we we just talked to somebody we, about yeah this. we we talked to um, there's a woman science that we, math what's, um, what is her, oh what is her? stems. Science, technology, and something math, and they've added engineering, engineering. So science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So STEM has now been moved into STEAM. So these STEAM or STEM programs, they're all over this, you know, all over the country, and it's driving parents crazy because parents are like, this is not what this is not how we were educated when we were children, and so. It's, 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 I'm watching this sort of breakdown in society as these kids are, you know, being uh, educated through these programs. And so now, and then I think ahead, like, wow, where are we going to be in 20 years when these kids who act like robots now are going to be running the country? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. and, then, and then we, we've interviewed a woman named oh, Lynn Taylor right. a few times and she, she goes by Common Core Diva. Yeah. So the Common Core is the other thing that, that I think drives people crazy. And Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's so, a you know, these terrible, terrible program. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, they're all about, again, you know, putting children into tracks. You know, I've brought this up several times, but I mean, it starts with the testing, the standardized testing, and it, you know, follows you throughout your, your life. And it probably even now, especially if you're um, considered poor or, or live in a, a community at risk or whatever, however they label it now, whatever the kids are saying these days. Um, <laughs> You know, um, that it, it starts even, you know, pre-birth, like prenatal. Right. Where they'll offer these programs to, uh, to pregnant, pregnant women, women who are at risk or in, you know, marginalized communities. And, or um, who are already in the system themselves. Who are already in the, you know, yeah, They're yeah. the best target. Right. Right. And they start monitoring the, uh, you know, the, the health of the mother through, you know, the birth of the child. And the child is already tracked before it's even born. Right. It's just, yeah, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty insidious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I think the most manipulative thing about this too is that if you, if you listen to, you know, yourself speak and you, you say things like, well, they want to, you know, say, they want to claim that they're going to offer opportunity and, you know, let's, let's get these kids, give these kids a leg up in, in society and let's get them on the right track. All of that sounds really good. So mm-hmm. it's always feel good language. Whenever say I talk to a liberal who's part of the industry that is making these things happen and they just look at me with, you know, they're just appalled that I would be against all of these things. I say, <laughs> well, who benefits, you know, ultimately yes. who's benefiting from this and, and it's the tech companies that are making billions of dollars on rolling out, you know, little uh, tablets for the kids to do their at-home schooling on, you know, and where they get their little badges that tell them that they behaved well or, in the last program or, that they achieved. You or know? companies in the in the new biotech 
world, you know, like by, uh, Ginkgo Bioworks, mm-hmm. who are collecting DNA from the children in schools. And, you know, they're using that information so that, you know, children are, you know, basically their DNA. That they're the, the putting children, them on a chain. They're putting them mm-hmm. on a chain. The children are basically, you know, the, the currency. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, these people that are part of these programs, I mean, they're, they all have like, you know, sociology degrees or anthropology degrees or something. And mm-hmm. they, they think that they're, that they're really doing good and they just don't see that it's a, it's very corporate. It's mm-hmm. a business model right. that's rolled out into the financialization and the cannibalization of human beings, which is nothing different than putting a human being on the auction block. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see any difference in this. And, and, um, so I've, I've, gotten into a few arguments with academics about this, but that's what I see. Um, and I think as a creative, I think I, I feel like it's my job to talk about it. It's my job to put it to, you know, found art or music. And I think when I find something that rattles my cage and it keeps me up at night, such as you know, what's going on in opportunity zones or what's going on with biological warfare programs, I'm, you're probably going to get a video essay out of it, you know, <laughs> somehow. <laughs> my, yeah. my, uh, creative process is, is quite different from JP's, yeah. you know. Yeah. But we still work together yeah. to, to develop these, these ideas and, and put them into the, the long form, you know, video essays that we've created over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Which are just one, you know, you kindly told me that I could re-upload a few of them and I, I haven't done it yet because I'm just the, you know, just, it's just me and, the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but well, I will, know. I will use this opportunity to highlight a, a few of them because they're, they're thought provoking and beautiful. They're, they're just well, lovely you. to look at, to listen to and. Thank think you. Have, have the two of you come across the work of Charlotte Iserby? Wow, I know that name. I don't. Why do I know that name? She, yeah. she wrote a book called The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. She just passed away last year, just a little over a year ago, I think. But she was a, a senior policy advisor to, under Reagan um, in right. the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. And way back then, all those years ago, she came um, upon a program, and I, I actually just pulled it up because my memory's not that good, but it's called Better Education Skills Through Technology mm. Project Best. Mm. And she saw what she was looking at, and she said, this is... This is getting the parents' influence out of the way. This is a socialist, collectivist world at the service of high, you know, big tech. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not good. And this no. was way back in the 80s that she started to, to talk, about, to talk about this. Yeah, I feel like, yes, I feel like I've seen a trending uh, conversation that she had with somebody from back in the 80s. Like one of those, you know, how people in social media find things from like even back in the 60s and they say, see, see, they were mm-hmm. talking about it back then. I feel like <laughs> I, th- I feel like I saw that from her. So. Well, 
There's someone, I, I don't remember his name right now, but there was a, a young teacher, he's probably, he could be in his 30s or 40s, I don't know, but he had the opportunity to spend a good deal of time with her before she passed away, and she left him a large part of her archives, if not the entire archive, and he's wow. done... Yeah, he's done an amazing series of articles that I featured on the website uh, probably late last year called Teach Nocracy. Wow. Uh Okay. Very good series. Yeah. Well, definitely check that out as well. That's amazing. Yeah. Lucky him. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, I was going to mention, um, you know, if you'd like, you can take clips from some of the things that we've we've done if you want to use as illustrations. Um, you know, so you're welcome to, you know, if if you have the 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 many hours to to go (laughs) to go and do that, it's up. Yeah, it's fine. Well, Um, I actually I was thinking about music to run through this conversation, and I thought, ooh, I I think I'll scavenge a bit of the music that runs through your introductory piece on uh, Book of Hours. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And run a little bit through through here, but. So I, I, oh, one thing I want you to talk about the creative process a little bit, but when I, I had a chance to speak with you just really just a half an hour last week and we were talking about creativity and you said that the two of you just live by intuition and mm-hmm. th- this is the point where I just knew that my gut was right because this is, that that was Alan's way. It's you know the creative process and intuition, and th- these are guiding forces. So I loved mm-hmm. it. But before we get into your creative process, I wanted to mention that this just popped up. You know how you open up your computer and you'll get something that they want you to look at. You're getting a nudge. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, my the nudge that I got this morning was Microsoft bragging about a program that I had never heard of before. It was called Creating a More Equitable Justice System, the mm-hmm. Microsoft Justice Reform Initiative. Wow. Wow. What? Works to, works to empower communities and drive progress towards a more equitable justice system. And I thought, oh, ding, ding, ding. I'm going to talk to JP and Julie and that's exact. So sure enough, I looked into it and this is what I told you that, um, I had all those windows open and then I had a computer crash right before we were going to speak. But part of this, went missing. I had to go to the Wayback Machine to find it, but I think this comes out of USC, so University of Southern California in LA, mm-hmm. and it's their social innovation program, and they were working, or they are working with Microsoft on, on a, their part of the program is called the Neighborhood Data for Social Change Platform. Oh my God. 
They want to provide access to reliable, aggregated data at the neighborhood level. And I thought, there you go. This is the zone of opportunity, the data mining. uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that sounds like geofencing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that I'm not familiar with that term. Tell me. Well, it's basically aggregated. It's it's exactly what you described. It's aggregated data where people in very small communities, not necessarily opportunity zones, because the communities that would be geofenced are typically higher tax brackets where there's money to build into like like small communities in big cities where you have everything within a, you know, a five minute or a 15 minute walk from your front door. And then you're creating through Microsoft, you're, you, you know, you're creating, like you said, the aggregated data so that each individual is tracked. You know, I went over to the movie theater and bought tickets and then I went across the street and bought my groceries. And the second you get out of your little zone, your 15 minute or even five minute zone, you're you're tracked and maybe you'll get an ad that says don't you want to buy this or don't you need that and it'll pull you back into your own zone this is like uh i did something called um geofencing and i used i used some little graphics it's only about like i don't know a minute or two minutes long and the thing is, I know I I have friends that live in these types of neighborhoods, and they don't think of it as like a trackable prison system. They don't <laughs> well, think of it that way because it's so convenient for them. Right. Well, People then, will come them. to love their servitude. That was yeah. Aldous Huxley. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. you know, and we've got we all carry around our fondle blocks, and, yeah. and yeah. we all and we you know we'll use our our, our credit cards or our, our debit cards, and you know th- this this way of tracking people through marketing has you know has been going on for for decades uh, you know what you purchase at the at the uh, grocery store when they made it possible for you to buy groceries at the grocery store with credit cards that was a boon to the marketing sector that you know that was able to then track you know what you bought how you you know and how you paid for it of course but like how often you bought it and what brands and what uh, types of you know and it, it you know, that can easily get translated into, you know, this sort of health economy that we, that we've been, that we find ourselves in now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so the other thing too, along the lines of, of, of consumerism and, and, you know, purchasing your own prison, <laughs> you know, we did a video called Sidewalk Spy Kit. Hey, fear porn fans, Tori Evenstar here. Your one and only source for Amazon surveillance technology. Does the thought of 5G rollout keep you awake at night? Are you afraid of corporate overreach and tech surveillance fascism? Then grab your panic button, chicken little fans, and say hello to Amazon Sidewalk. And, you know, the Amazon Sidewalk program that that basically, you know, ties in your your doorbell your what is that the uh it's your ring ring doorbell yeah. right with the uh with the mm-hmm. video camera mm-hmm. and uh the whole thing that that allows them to you know make deliveries to your house magically you know mm-hmm. like they can open your garage and leave a package <laughs> in there and, but but sidewalk is is beyond that where it's like it it uses you know old-fashioned uh, radio signals that tie into the your wi-fi system 
and the whole neighborhood is basically on surveillance. And, but it's not for your safety. It's for the benefit of, of Amazon to keep track of what's going on. And they can turn that, that uh, information over to the authorities if they want to or use it for their own purposes of like, oh, hey, somebody hasn't bought something from us for a long time. We better, you know, get over there and, and, and market to them somehow through their uh, through their Alessa or uh, Alexa. Alexa, <laughs> Alexa yeah. Alexa, right? So I <laughs> think know? that when you talked about the Microsoft and you stumbled upon this link or this video about the Microsoft creating a more equitable justice system with, um, I think it's a focus on mental health. Mm -hmm. I think that we can tie what you accidentally stumbled upon, we can tie that in with the $10.8 million grant that this mm -hmm. community of poverty that we live in, this mm -hmm. Opportunity Zone, we can tie that in with that because... There is a provision in that funding grant. Mm -hmm. gr grant, in that grant, that says that they're going to hire or bring in... A consulting firm. Well, and then officers that would dis oh. disperse violence or right, break right. up violence. Yeah. So I, I forget think, what they were called, but yeah. I yeah. think what we're going to get is a replacement of um, your tax paying or your your police that are paid through your taxes that's going to be replaced with like a with private firms is what i'm mm -hmm. trying to say and they're going to be tied in with these aggregated data systems so that these private security people will have say like a handheld device and they'll be able to say this neighborhood has a potential for at risk youth so let's target it more because based on the aggregated data, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like this is all kind of starting to come together mm -hmm. and it just feels like the, the bars are going up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think they're up. I think that they just want us to see the, the savvier ones of us uh, can see them. Yeah. yeah, and I don't yeah. mean savvy like you know. Let's pat ourselves on the back, but you know, those no, of us no. who have our eyes opened, we can see the bars now. And mm -hmm. but they're 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 up. Yeah. yeah. Really quickly, when you were talking about sidewalk, um, I, I'm sure that there were a lot of different lab cities. But I was in Canada at the time that they had the big sidewalk Toronto. Now, oh, wow. yeah, I think that they ended the that trialing of that in 2020 because of what was going on the the covid operation but they did the, the all of that let's have an inclusive urban neighborhood sustainable economic opportunity affordable and everything no this is just like you said we're buying our prison and mhm mm mhm well and and it's funny we uh you know you, you mentioned equity in that in that whole you know, like equity keeps popping up, that word, right? Mm -hmm. And um, a friend of ours said this, equity is new speak, meaning equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity. And, you know, that, that really gets to the heart of it, to, to you know, thinking about these, these things. Anytime you see a program, and your listeners probably know this, anytime you see a, a program with feel-good language, you know you just apply the opposite words to what they say in there, right? <laughs> yeah. And they're replacing the idea of equality, uh, the idea of equity, you know, or the, the word equity with basically equality. And there's even been propaganda around that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, equity is much better than equality. 
equality is just that, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, even and whatever, but equity does blah, blah, blah. You know, however they pitch it, right? However they pitch it, but it's really about taking away your ability to actually be a person (laughs) (laughs) and, and, and more about, um, basically putting you into a, a a box, you know, equity and a label. label. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Equity and, you know, identity politics. These, these are ways of creating more conformity so that it's easier to keep track of you. And, and, and the labeling helps them understand how to place you in whatever program they, they, they deem fit. But it also works on your own brain, like what Julie was talking about before, to where you start seeing yourself as this mm-hmm. of whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, mm-hmm. and and the idea of identity replaces individuality. And, you know, I was thinking about this um, this morning where, you know, identity politics and identity, it 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 replace it. Basically, it's about what you are, not who you are. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, that feels like it's the same thing as racism. And so this whole thing about white supremacy and racism and all that has been a deflection of a lot of what's going on, especially with equity and with identity politics, in, in thinking that, you know, what you are is more important than who you are. And the same thing goes with racism. Mm-hmm. Racism is about identifying the other as being different from you and lower than you and worse than you, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not who you're uh, afraid of or who you don't like or hate because of what they are, right. right? Right. And so people are now being put into these categories and it's being celebrated as right. opposed to, you know, I'm an individual and this is what I'm about. This is who I am. Instead, it's, and this is, this is being, you know, really, this is strongly being used in the corporate sector, in certain, you know, sectors of the corporate world. Well, I think this is really what ESGs are all about. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that's, yeah, they, they, mm-hmm. they can, they can pretend how much they care while they've boxed you in and you're just paying for the privilege to have that label. Correct. Right. Yeah. 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 We, we, we've talked a little bit about ESGs. We, mm-hmm. you know, environmental sustainable governance. So yeah. then right. every corporation has a DEI officer, which is the diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Right. Which is they, what I was talking about yeah. just a moment ago. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they get up in front of their, you know, multi thousand employee, you know, company, like a, kind of like in a TED talk, you know, mm-hmm. kind of scenario where they have a little microphone and, you know, and they talk about how diverse their employee base is and how they promote equity and they want to be inclusive mm-hmm. in their hiring practices. It's all just really, it's all the show. Yeah. And we yeah. were watching a, we were watching a video it was, uh, from the white house and it was about the biotech industry and how the white house was like supporting this thing. And it was this uh, sort of one day symposium mm-hmm. of these businesses that were in the sort of biotech sector and this one woman got up and she's, I think, from Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, you know, and she she fits the you know, identity politics thing down to a T where she's, you know, black and gay. And, you know, <laughs> she checks off all the boxes. She checks off all the yeah. boxes. Right. <laughs> and that's that's what it's most. That's that's what's most important. You know, mm-hmm. Right. But she was saying, oh, yeah, well, we have, you know, the most diverse, you know, business in this sector 
And then get this. She says, in the suite, in the C-suite. Meaning, right, so all, so, you know, this is something we get into a lot. This is, this is about class, not about race, right? Right. Right. So this, this class of educated C-suite, so by C-suite we mean uh, the, uh, the The CFO. The the CEO, CFO, the chiefs, right? The chiefs. COO. COO, CC, whatever, right? (laughs) So all these educated people, yeah, sure, they're people of color, but they're also, you know, the they were bourge- born the bu- into more privilege than most of us. Yeah, right. exactly. So there's, there's <laughs> well, bourgeoisie. Yeah. You know, the, one of the things that you talked about earlier was the idea that kind of the warning to people, you know, hey, if you want to know what your life is going to be like, just take a look at what's going on in these opportunity zones because this will be coming for you. And mm-hmm. this is the the idea about class that I think, you know, Alan certainly put this across quite a lot. He said all of these divisions, these these ridiculous ways in which people feel superior to one another because they're upper middle class or they're, they were able to put their children in Ivy League schools or whatever, he said, no, we, we've got two classes of people. It's them and everybody else. That's how they <laughs> see us. Right. And right. he, he right. would, he would encourage people, don't get into these divisions, you know, oh, you, you're a little bit better than your neighbor. You're a little bit better than somebody else because right. you went to uni, you know, because that's just playing the game. It's the same thing with identity politics and race and so forth. We actually do have a common enemy. If we can yeah. just wrap our heads around, you know, and also what are words, you know, austerity is what the bankers tell us we're going to need because they got in there and did this program and that program, you know, austerity package so that mm-hmm. you can get your debt paid off. What's austerity? That's poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that is what and- is coming for all of us who aren't yes. in that one percent, if you will? <laughs> right. Yeah. And and they and it's them who it's they who created the situation in the first place to put you mm-hmm. into that position. That's right. Of, yeah, that's of austerity, right. right? That's right. So it's 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 their undoing, and then you you know you're now being blamed and being held accountable for something that they did deliberately so that they could put you into that position. <laughs> yeah. It's and awesome. all of their NGOs it. and their foundations have nothing better to do all day long than fund the programs that divide us. Correct. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's it. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we did a, um, along these same lines, we did a, a video a while ago, a couple of years ago, and it's a cartoon. It's called Resilient Cities. Your one and only source for deep dives into public-private partnerships. Are you a chief resilience officer, a mayor, a representative from the private sector? Then grab your tote bag, conference crawlers. Resilient Cities are the action du jour for the managerial class. And it's about the Rockefeller Foundation uh, had created this this program called Resilient Cities mm-hmm. that basically puts a bunch of money into a community so that it is resilient. <laughs> I remember um, that. <laughs> but basically, it, it it does nothing ultimately. It's like the wraparound services that we were talking about. It's like the opportunity zones we were talking about. It's it it does absolutely nothing for the community. It does everything for the the leadership of the of the city. 
and the, you know, maybe the corporations that benefit from the services that are paid for and, and purchased as a result of, you know, doing these, these resilient city programs. Now that the Rockefeller philanthropists are funding resilient cities again, the money is flowing to make sustainability the foundation of urban planning and the future for cities around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maximize profits. Maximizing profits, maximizing, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, and it's the same playbook as we, as you were saying before with, you know, austerity. It's the same playbook as, as the COVID narrative. It's the same playbook as, you know, terrorism or any other thing that you see out there that doesn't smell right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Doesn't pass the sniff. Well, I want you to before because we've um we've been talking for uh, almost an hour now, but I I want you to share if you feel like it a bit of the creative process mm-hmm. and a bit of the just just your creative work and how you go about it and how you feel sure. about it and think about it. Do you want to go first? Or you want me to? Well, I touched on it um, earlier on in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, it's quite simple. It's if it rattles my cage and if it keeps me up at night, then you'll probably hear an audio or see a video or some kind of video essay. And then it becomes, I feel like the creative process or the artwork becomes my civic duty. I I don't know how else to put it. I felt like with the new constitution, Living War Crimes, which was the latest long form video essay I did, I felt like it was my absolute duty to, especially for people in the United States to, to be informed, you know, about what, what's going on in, in that sense and why, you know, for instance, why the constitution was suspended, which is the weirdest thing for me to, to do a video essay about something that I don't necessarily subscribe to. I don't think we need a piece of paper to tell us that we're free, you know, but here I was and as an anarchist, you know, doing a video essay about questioning why the Constitution was suspended, you know, starting in March of 2020. So beautiful. It, I, I, I will definitely link to that because it was a beautiful piece of work there that you did. Thank you. And so the creative process around that in answer to your question was it kept me up at night and I just could not let it go. Mm-hmm. So I spent two or three months working on it. Yeah. And, you know, we both write the scripts and we both edit and we both do the voiceover. In this case, Julie wrote it, put it together, edited it. I did some voiceover because that's what, that's how we work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she did pretty much everything else, which is pretty much the whole thing. (laughs) I gave some voiceover. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and so we, you know, like I said, we both write, but we come from different creative, um, uh, disciplines. Julie has background in um, in theater. Mm-hmm. I have uh, I have a degree. <laughs> I have an art degree. I, I, went to SF, I went to SF State University for what it's worth. So I got my my degree in in art, in painting, and something called conceptual design, which was like conceptual art strategies and using new technologies. So you know this would be anything from you know video to installation work to you know various forms of, of conceptual art. There's a lot of different ones out there and using new technologies. And so, you know, I, I, I really um, have clicked into the video medium. Um, it's something that I never 
thought I'd ever get into. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. But I've always worked in sort of a, um, a mixed, to go back to the idea of the creative process rather than the medium. For me, it, it's about being able to put different ideas together, what's called mixed media. So it's drawing, painting, collage, you know, whatever else is in there, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've always like mixed things together. That's why I love the video because I can, I can bring different pieces of different media into one piece and represent an idea. Including so music. Me, including music, exactly. And, and we're starting actually to, to make music. And uh, Julie, Julie is, you sang a song on one of the things that you did recently. It was so lovely. Oh, I, thank I don't you. remember the name of it, but it was just a lovely piece. Thank you so much. It was just an acapella for of a, a it you know wasn't my own. It was it's called the Golden Age. But thank mm-hmm. you so much for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I felt compelled to do it. Yeah, so. and it's a pop song that we'd heard you know years ago. Years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. And yeah. it just seems to still you know um, it's still poignant. Tell me where are our heroes? Are they stuck at the wall? Cause we got some real villains to stop before they kill us all. The golden age, it's ours to save. I hear the bells ringing. Are you? But we're starting to make music. Julie's learning how to play guitar. I'm teaching her. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm starting to write songs again after, you know, 35 years. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> and, um, and um, but anyway, we, so go ahead. Well, I was, I don't want you to lose the thread on the creativity and the oh, process, yeah. but, you know, we could have done this in, at the intro, but I just had to gush over you a bit. But <laughs> you, you could give a little bit about your background because I, I failed to do that. For both okay. of you. To well, let me let me finish my uh, my bit on the, the creative process, and I can tell you a little bit about the, our backgrounds. Okay. So, yeah, so putting different ideas together. So, for me, I'll get an idea about something that is maybe going on in the world, whether it's a top, you know, particular topic, something that's that's current event, maybe something societal, maybe something you know broader context, and put it together with maybe some historical equivalent. Um, I recently uh, was thinking about the the, uh, the 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 story of Gilgamesh and mm. um, that whole epic, and you know it's basically a it's it's a story about the beginning of civilization, especially his his fight with the the guardian of the forest and and how he basically went and attacked the guardian of the forest, and that's basically it's a parable about civilization beginning and conquering nature, right? And I was thinking about how, you know, at the beginning of, of time or the beginning of civilization, this is what was going on. You know, people were thinking of themselves as separate than, from nature. And, and we're now we're at sort of at the end of civilization <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. And the very same people who drove us to, to, you know, conquer nature, you know, kings and, and, and rulers like Gilgamesh, who I'm not a fan. I don't like Gilgamesh. He's a real, piece of you know what mm-hmm. but um yeah but it's a great epic it's a great story in in that you know we're now being blamed for our part in destroying nature 
and that we have to restore nature at the co- at our own cost. Whereas the it's the it's the rich people, it's the bourgeoisie, it's the it's the ruling class that pushed us into you know the way this this current lifestyle and way of living that we're in. Just like when they blame us for our own uh, fault for you know being poor or whatever, and we have to go into austerity, they do the same thing with you know, well you know it's your fault that that the the rainforest is gone, and and so now we have to kill the indigenous people and save the animals, right? So <laughs> yeah, right. And so it's the same activity. It's just that they're 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 it's in the reverse. What I was thinking of doing for that was is that we were talking about maybe doing a shadow puppet story, you know, the kind of um, Balinesian shadow puppets, but it just never came together because it's like we'd have to you know, draw the characters, make the puppets, it's like, record it. It's just it. the two of us. We and don't have like a production team or anything like Write that. the script. I got the, I got the script partway written, but you know, it was just yeah. like, and I, once I got into it, it was like, oh my God. So, yeah. well, we'll so you know, we'll probably figure something out. Right. So for yeah. me, you know, a lot of times the creative process also involves understanding the scope of something. Right. Because right. I have a background in painting, I understand, you know, I've got to make sure that I limit my scope so that I can convey the, the idea effectively without overreaching. Right. Right. Because otherwise mm-hmm. I'm just wasting canvas and paint <laughs> and my time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and these are things that you learn in school and you learn on your own and, and when you're doing things. So, you know, after years of, of, of working, you know, I, I've, I've come to understand how to do that. With the video essays, you know, um, it's been about, you know, getting the idea that I was talking about and comparing it to something else and putting it together and drawing conclusions based on, as you said, we, we, we live in the world of, of intuition, using intuition, using what is, what, what has been identified to us as lateral thinking. We never thought of ourselves as, as practitioners of lateral thinking. It's just something we do, but it's been pointed out that that's the way we, 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 we work and think. Your, your listeners can look up lateral thinking. It's been discredited because, um, in, in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, academic world, I think because of its use of, of intuition, um, and it's this dependence on intuition. So it works well for us. Um, we never sought out to, to use it as a practice. It's just the way we think. Mm-hmm. So that all ties into the, to the creative process for, for me and, and I think you too as well, Julia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that talking a little bit about our backgrounds, which you had mentioned, I, I really want to focus on the fact that even so we met in uh, 2012 and we married in 2017 Mm -hmm. so we're still kind of I still feel like we're kind of newlyweds yeah (laughs) and it was the you know the day I met him was um pure intuition you know it was I need you know I was volunteering for you know I was 42 at the time I was volunteering for the uh, something called Sunday Streets in San Francisco, which is where they close down the streets and open them up for the children to play in. And people um, ride their bikes. People ride and their bikes hoop. and there's hoops <laughs> and games and bubbles and it's, it's very sweet. And so I was volunteering for something like that. And then he was part of, he was an ambassador for the San Francisco Bike Coalition, which is the largest member held bicycle coalition in the country. Um, so he was an ambassador for that. And so, Two, these two organizations tended to overlap mm-hmm. um, and 
people were often working together with these two organizations. People often knew each other and, and typically the people that were part volunteering for these organizations worked in the nonprofit sector. Um, and so it was very, it was very interesting because I didn't work in the nonprofit sector. I worked for Le Cordon Bleu San Francisco as just in the administrative capacity, you know, giving tours of the school of the French culinary programs and things like that. And he worked in the corporate sector. So we didn't come from a nonprofit place and we found ourselves volunteering for these two sort of community organizations and we met at a at an event mm-hmm. that was held for for us in honor of the volunteers for these two organizations right. so that's literally where we met was mm. at a place called brick and mortar yeah so <laughs> it's, it's, kind a, of it's, a, it's a bar and so i told people we met in a bar <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we met at an event for the i know my mother would be appalled <laughs> she thought i met you at a bar but no we met we met you know because we both were volunteers and and um it was very like the meeting him and starting to talk about you know wanting to do creative things together and then getting married it was all very much we were led by our by this intuitive thing in us. And Mm -hmm. then when it came to both of us looked at each other one day, right after we got married or, you know, right about the time we were going to get married, which was, we got married in November of 2017. So for all of 2017 and even back into 2016, we looked at each other and said, I think we need to leave San Francisco. We don't know why, but I think we need to leave. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, we left San Francisco and I feel like we were sort of like refugees. Yeah. Um, looking back on the city now and getting fights, getting into fights with my friends that still live there who, who are blaming the homeless for being homeless oh, and the yeah, rise yeah, of yeah. the unhoused in that yeah. city. I'm like, no, this is a, this is a, 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 an effort to demoralize the city as a whole. This is not an individual homeless person's fault. This is the fault of, you know, your corrupt officials. And we, we saw that corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw the mayor of San Francisco, Ed Lee. Right before a, he died. Uh, yeah, we saw him at, event, at an event, a Christmas event. And then four days later, he was dead. And when I saw him, I turned to JP and I said, he looks like he's being poisoned. Like there's so much corruption yeah. in that city. He looked ashen gray. He looked, and he was, he looked clammy and ashen and looked like he'd been poisoned. And four days later he was dead and the whole city was in shock. Yeah. They were just, you could, it was palpable on everyone's faces. They were walking around just in utter shock. And this was in 20, mm. <sighs> 17, 2018, 2016, 2017. Yeah. Right before we left. Yeah. And, you know, we had already, um, been planning, you know, like we, 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 our escape, we escaped our escape. (laughs) Yeah. We went to the central coast and got a hotel room and kind of hung out, um, near, uh, Hearst castle and (laughs) go there, but we, we wanted to be in the, the, near the ocean. So we we Uh went to a little community where we could do that and just, just hang out. And we, we developed a, like a five-year plan. Um, nothing like, you know, like the, you know, the communist party, but just to, to <laughs> a five-year plan for us to, 
you know, see how we could move away, what that would look like, what we needed to do that, how we could, you know, go about that. And we eventually started looking at different cities. We looked at, you know, all over the country. We even thought about, you know, leaving the country. And I'm glad we didn't because the, the cities we were looking at turned out to be some of the most you know, some of the worst places you could have ended up in, you know, post COVID, (laughs) the post COVID world. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at Nashville, we looked at Detroit, we looked at Chicago, Chicago. we looked at West coast cities like Portland or Seattle. Mm -hmm. Um, And we ended up in Pittsburgh simply because we could afford it. Yeah. And we were able to, 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 to move here on the resources that we did have buy a house that was very cheap that we could buy for cash so that we could cut our expenses so that, you know, we could regroup and figure out what our next move would be. Right. But it also, you know, we also had the plan to make art and to be creative people. We had already started Book of Hours as a, as a, uh, sort of a concept. It was a concept and it was a, a, an art, not collective, but collaboration is what we've always called it. Mm -hmm. And it started out, we were going to make, you know, physical art, like sculptures and, and maybe even like make fake apps and, and, you know, <laughs> and sort of a, you know, sort of like a tongue in cheek kind of uh, conceptual art piece. Right. So we were doing all the, we were thinking about all these things and, and trying to come up with ways to, to live a more creative life outside of the, you know, this, this, this juggernaut that was San Francisco that just had us tied to, you know, paying extor, extor, ex, exorbitant rents extortion rents extortion <laughs> rents <laughs> and yeah. and 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 just you know despite the fact that we loved where we lived it was beautiful we had access to culture and uh you know cafes and and and, yeah. and street life that was positive it was time to go yeah so this this idea that you know you can you have how many senses do you have? You have um well, we have yeah we're we're supposed to be have we're supposed to have like five but I think that there were originally well David Martin said there were twelve right. um, but so I don't know <laughs> I feel like we've been living with an additional sense like an additional ear or you know or uh-huh. you know what I'm saying like we just I do I feel because we've really been living by intuition. This is why everything feels out of balance and why you're feeling multiple emotions at the same time. The anger, fear, anxiety, frustration, uncertainty, self-doubt, blame, and sense of betrayal is happening all at the same time. And you are not the only one that is experiencing it. How we get out from under all of this is unclear. It might be time to stop feeding the beast by participating in the game. It's time for more people to start asking questions, but at the same time stop questioning the reasonable alternative ideas, information, and solutions that don't fit into our personal narrative. The official narrative and its new normal has taken us, our minds, and our consciousness to places we would never go on our own. Curiosity no longer exists, not really. Corporate conformity is the norm and keeps us boxed in, incurious, and blind to what is going on around us. It's time to start paying attention to yourself, your thoughts, and feelings. 
and stop blaming others who are also trying to find their way through this. Although we need others to help us along the way, now is the time to keep your own counsel so that we know how to work with others, how to trust, and who to trust. It's time to engage your experiential knowledge and intuition. Find your guiding star. Plot your course. Start telling your own story again. Our liberation is at stake. In fact, in March of 2020, after the national emergency was announced, I just turned to him and said, here we go. Yep. Like, this is it. And so we did Quarantyranny together, uh, which is a, our first video essay. Well, in, in, the, in the era of COVID. In the age of the COVID operation. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Quarantyranny. Um, Quarantyranny. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that when I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And it's... um. Lots of video work of Pittsburgh and some, we included some videos from San Francisco and, uh, that was very intuitive. That, that particular video essay was the most intuitive one that we've done and it still stands the test of time mm-hmm. three years later. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, yeah. So we- intuition is really important. I think that in this age where we've got all of this, geofencing and electronic colonization going on in in the world i think that humans need to tap into their intuition now more than ever yeah i agree in order to keep humanity alive and if i ever needed proof of how the dark side had taken the beautiful dream of what a nation could be and had twisted it destroyed it well that was it but i won't stop I won't give up, because when I look at what is happening in the world, I know that now, more than ever, we need to be all that we can be. Now, more than ever, we need the Jedi. I, I think so too. I think, you know, see, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series was because I, I, I would talk to people and go, oh, that's just the most amazing story that should be shared. And that was a part of it. But I realized we are living through the most important history and this will never be shared. It won't be talked about because there is the, uh, his story the authoritative mm. picture mm-hmm. of the times that we're living through that we're supposed to say, okay, that's history. We all agree. And it isn't because we're kept in the dark. We don't know really what's going on. And so we have to, we must use our intuition to figure out what is true, what is real. Yeah. And also, yeah. and humanity, we are so, and this is, you know, one of the reasons why I would, I saw your stuff and I'm like, oh, uh, must contact them because it's clear, it's clear that you have a love of humanity in your work yep. and that yes. you're yes. doing what you can in your small way to ensure that what's left of humanity, well, that humanity survives. And I know that that may sound incredibly 
hyperbolic, but we are really in a precarious times here as to whether humanity can survive. Yeah. Um, I think that, that it, it, it does sound so overwhelming to, to say things like, you know, that humanity is, is precariously dangling on the cliff of, 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 of extinction. Uh, of extinction. <laughs> um, and so one of the things that really drew me to JP when I first met him was how he took all of the problems of the world and all of the, the stress and the dysfunction and just put it outside and he could focus on planting a garden and you've never seen so many beautiful flowers, <laughs> you know, I mean, he has like 12 green thumbs, right? <laughs> so I, I'm wondering like, and then he started planting food in, you know, in the last couple here. of years, yeah, right? When we right. got here, he, he started doing raised beds and then the little, the children who live in this opportunity zone that don't even know how to boil pasta to take care of themselves for coming over and asking him, what are you doing? What is that? And he showed them how to, he showed them how a compost bin works where you throw your eggshells in a compost bin and you make rich soil for, so that you can plant the food. And so you're, you know, our, our entire education system is failing children right and left. So it's really up to us to hold on to that humanity and, stay like passionately in love with it mm -hmm. um, and keep it so resilient in our hearts so that we can continue to plant the flowers and eat the food and have faith in people. Some of the most tragic circumstances um, are taking place with some of my closest friends and the, the level of sacrifice that they're making for their loved ones. You know, I have a friend who's taking care of her elderly father and she's watching him diminish very rapidly. And the sacrifices that she's making for him show, you know, this passion for humanity, um, putting so much love and care and time into caring for him, you know, uh, families supporting each other in, in while this rise of homelessness happens. I have a really good friend who's just become homeless. I mean, this is the time when people really need to, to hold on to that humanity and not, yes. um, not abandon, abandon it to technology or whatever, you yeah. know? And, and it's important to, to remember that we need to, we all need to punch up, uh, punch down or yes. sideways, you know, like, cause the thing that, that Julie mentioned earlier with, you know, a friend of ours in San Francisco who's, who's angry and mad about the, the homeless, homelessness, homeless situation, but not mad about homelessness. He's mad at the homeless, right? right? The unhoused right. that are, that are, that are, that are so, there are everywhere in San Francisco now. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's because of policies and because of, of activities and, 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 and various programs that have produced that situation, not to mention the, the, the economy there, but like the place that we live now, we live around people who uh, are, are recovering from addiction as a result of the opioid crisis, the so-called opioid crisis. Yes. Oh, put, oh, put upon us, yes. put upon yeah. these communities, mm -hmm. especially the, um, especially the communities in the Rust Belt and the in Midwest and, and, and South, you know, the rural communities where 
you have people walking around, they look like zombies, and it's not their fault. They're not the ones that, that cause the problem. They are addicted, yes, but what caused that addiction in the first place? And, and it's a myriad of things. Trauma. Trauma mm -hmm. is, is a big part of it, and, and that trauma comes from a multiple... It's generational. It's generational, and it's, and it's, it's, it's multifaceted. And, well, it, you know, we... If you're, if you're looking for, um, to really get angry and worked up about that situation, I just read a few months ago, a couple of months ago, Empire of Pain about the Sackler mm. dynasty. Oh, the Sackler. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. The wow. Ox yeah. Oxycontin. And right. that'll, that'll just get your blood boiling because. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and so then we, you know, when we see our neighbors, they're in recovery or they're living in halfway houses after being in some sort of institution, whether it's prison or, or whatever else, some of them have ankle monitors, you know, and sure, we don't relate to, or we don't really, you know, have any relationship with them. We see them, but we don't like, you know, yell at them or, mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, no. consider them, them to be, you know, they keep to themselves. They don't want any any you know issues right, right. so mm -hmm. we 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 keep our distance but we also keep our respect exactly i think the most important thing to remember too in this whole process which is the sort of the crisis industrial complex um is you know is that with addiction and with a lot of the problems that come with addiction is people lose their sense of dignity and i want to try to make sure that people know that as a human being they deserve to still live in dignity um yeah uh, dignity seems to be missing in in Agreed. our society i agree um yeah. so we're we're trying to we're holding on you know trying to bring it back and trying to inspire people to recognize the value that everybody has whether you're drug addicted or whether you're a creative or you know, a contributing upright member of society with your, all your money. And I'll, you know? I'll tell you something too, is, you know, the folks that walk in, up and down the back alley, you know, where are we have our garden? Cause mm -hmm. the garden, the garden opens up to the alley. We don't have fences. Right. Um, uh, they see it, they see the production, they see the, the work that goes into it and they see the flowers. They love the flowers. I have sunflowers every summer. Mm -hmm. and other types of flowers and 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 they it really you can tell it brings some joy to them but they also talk about how you know and this is the saddest part i remember my grandparents mm -hmm. or my parents had yeah. had a garden mm. and they grew blah 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 mm. right yeah and it's like well why, why don't, don't you, you do, do that, that? Now? well because <laughs> they don't have a place to do that right they don't have the the they no longer have the drive to do it Right. There's and then there's there's though. other people that come around here and they're like, aren't you afraid of people stealing from your garden? And I and I say no. <laughs> and the reason that I say no is because nobody knows what to do with this stuff. So this has been bred out of people as well. Yeah. Oh. Just this understanding of how to cook a zucchini. Yeah. You know? Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, so. it's, really, it's, it's really the saddest part. So our I, creative I, endeavors go all over the place, you know. I think that is great. One, one thing I was picking out a an Alan Watt talk to upload again as a redux and he said something to the effect of people have to learn how to be human and there are very few models 
of mm. humanity that remain for us. And it, it, it isn't easy anymore because of technology, because of programs, all of the things that have dehumanized us, including addictions. Mm-hmm. They dehumanize mm-hmm. us. But again, you're looking, I mean, one of the, the sad things about this last three years that we have lived through is people who complied people who went along, people who are now suffering because of the decision to comply and go along. And it's easy, it can, it, it's, it's tempting to say, oh, well, you should have known better, you should have paid attention, you should have studied this. But we are talking about scientific socialism where the indoctrination and the mind-bending and the nudging starts really young. And people don't know the models are few and far between that say a human has dignity, a human stands their ground. They say no when there's something wrong. They are creative. They do have more than five senses. That is something yes. that's stamped out of us too. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we we agree with that. Um, what an amazing individual he sounds, sounds like, Alan. He was. Yeah. 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 I wish I would have had an opportunity to meet him. Yeah, me too. You know. Um, but, you know, it's it, thank you for connecting with us and, and, and telling about him because we have, you know, checked in, um, you know, some of his, what we can find, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send you a couple of my favorite talks. And I'm just appreciative that Darren from South Africa had stumbled on your video and shared it with me because I, I was delighted to see that. And we've just talked a lot but i think that we, we, I, we do. i'm i well i i can too but i think that i'm going to have to speak with you again in this format if you'll have time down the road because there's a, a meeting of the minds here on what's going on and we may be coming at it from slightly different world views but that oh that was another important thing that i wanted to say mm-hmm. during the last three years i just got incredibly up to my eyeballs sick of the dialectic sick of the us versus them and all of the Mm -hmm. infighting you'd see you know it's like no reminder one common enemy and each other ain't it Mm -hmm. exactly exactly that's yeah i you and i share that same frustration um at the same time though it's interesting that we started aligning you know as a result of the covid um, action, the age of COVID, we started finding ourselves aligning with people we never would have related to in the past. Right. And so we're thankful for that. Yeah. It really opened up our eyes. We've learned so much from people that we just never had an opportunity to meet these kinds of people in a place like San Francisco, which is just so very much, you know, sort of one-sided in their either worldview or political views. Monoculture, very, monolithic, yeah. mono everything, yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so this experience, um, whether it's, you know, in person or even through, unfortunately, through technology, this experience has really informed us about things that we never would have known. Yeah, you know, that's true. Which is really inspiring for mm-hmm. creatives. For a, while yes. there we, for a while there, we had a, 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 an interview program for a couple of years, or a year, a year's period, mm-hmm. uh, interview program called Pull Quote. And we, you know, here we are 
I'm vegetarian. Julie, by default, being you know living around me, is vegetarian, but you're pescatarian more than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anarchist, vegetarian, and and we interview a, a man who's a conservative uh, a, a cattle rancher. <laughs> 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 um, you know, and we found common ground. Right. Uh, and I learned a lot yeah. from him about how much the state. Um, is taking away the rights of, of cattle ranchers. Or oh, farmers. yeah. Farmers. yeah. Agriculture. Yeah. Just yeah. the things we've learned. And I, you know, here I am, you know, in, just with my, my limited scope, I was like, oh, well, I like to go to farmers markets. And boy, did I get an earful on that. Like, farmers markets are not what you think they are. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> so. Well, I think what we'll do is, um, just it will wrap this one up, but I definitely want to just say right now that you're invited back, and I think we'll find other wonderful things. There, there, there were about half a dozen things that I think people would have been interested in that I've gathered that I've learned from watching your videos. Again, well, thank you. talking about yeah. common ground. So yeah. yeah, well, we'd be happy to come back. And, yeah, and absolutely. Talk to you. And you know, we can focus it more on specifics, you know, or however you want to um, uh, frame it. Yeah. Well, this this was an excellent introduction for me of both of you and your process and and the way your minds work. And so I'm delighted, and I thank the listeners for uh, sharing this time with us. And I will be back next week with someone else to talk to. Thank you. Thank you. Whoa!